make a transition today from uh, the Israelites in Gilgal, and we're going to see the transition of them actually going into the promised land, and they're going to go, and we're going to see the first battle today in, in, in Jericho. But before we do that, we got to understand, again, we've talked about kind of this preparation for the Israelites before they get into the promised land. There was these first uh, four chapters of the book of Joshua that had nothing to do with, with the conquest. that had to do all with the preparation for the people. And last week, we saw that there at Gilgal, the Israelites, they've crossed the Jordan River, God parted the river, and they're, they're into the land, and they're waiting. And we see, we see that God did this thing of preparation within them. And what we see is that Gilgal has become a, a really a key place for Israel. They're, they're, they've entered into the promised land, and, and, and really Gilgal has been a, a place of, of testing, a time of learning some hard lessons. I mean, of, of course, of course, they want to experience God's blessing. Of course, they want to experience uh, the, the promised land that God has given them. And they want to go and take it over and do the things that God said to do. But before sometimes there can be a Pentecost, there has to be a Calvary. Before there will be an outpouring of God's living waters and the hearts and the lives of God's people, there must be a death to ourselves, an absolute abandonment to God's will for us. And that's what we've seen at Gilgal as, as the Israelites are preparing to go into this land. They've seen that there is this, this time of, of preparation, this, this place at Gilgal before they can actually go in and take Jericho. Now, I don't know how many of you have grown up in the church and you grew up going to Sunday school and, and maybe you know this story. We're in Joshua chapter six. If you have a Bible, we're in Joshua chapter six. Um, uh, if you need a Bible, we've got an usher in the back. We'd love to be able to bring one of those. Mike is there, so just put your hand up and we'll put a Bible in your hands. And um, if you are if you're been in church, you're familiar with the story, you know it's, it's, it's Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And, and we have that old Sunday school song that we remember singing. And Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. I know, this is why I'm not a worship leader. This is why... Um, those that can't sing, preach, something like that. And so, and so this is the story of the battle of Jericho. Now, in terms of, of, of what we need to understand about the background, in 1400 BC, which is about when this story takes place, the city of Jericho was a, was a big city, and it was a strategically located for, fortress in the middle of the promised land. So this city was a vital city for the Israelites to take control of if they were going to go and, and conquer the land. It was, it, this city drove a wedge between the land to the north and the land to the south. Now this city, we learned a couple of weeks ago, was surrounded by these two large walls, a series of walls. The outer wall was built on top of an inner retaining wall. And estimates are that these walls were somewhere around 40 feet high. And so this city was an important city. It could not be bypassed because if you were to bypass Jericho and go around it to go try and conquer the rest of the land, you would leave a large military force at your rear that would come in and, and spank you from behind, right? And so, and so here's Joshua. They're getting ready to go and take the, the city of Jericho. And you can kind of picture if, if there was a council of, of war, you know, they're getting all the advisors together, together to say, how do we do this? You know, uh, one advisor would argue that you have to take this city by, 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 by siege ramps. 
Uh, this would have been an approach that at the top of the walls, you would have put maybe a ladder or something. Maybe you've seen this in some of those old Roman, um, uh, Roman movies where they take the fortified cities, you know. Uh, maybe you'd have some sort of ramp to get you to the top of the wall so you can get in and attack the, the land, the city. Another, another advisor, he would probably argue and say, you know, what we need to do is because Jericho has been shut up because the gates are closed and nobody can get in or out, you know, maybe we just need to seal up the city. You know, if we seal up the city, they can't hold out forever. Eventually, they're going to have to come out for something. And so, you know, eventually they're going to have to come to terms and open up the city gates and then they will surrender. But what's interesting is, is as we look in Joshua uh, chapter 6, we're going to see that's not exactly what they do. That God has different plans for Joshua and the Israelites as they go in to take Jericho. So we're going to be in uh, Joshua chapter 6. We're actually going to start in Joshua chapter 5. And uh, so if you have uh, one of these Bibles, we're going to be, uh, you're going to be on page 156. And uh, would encourage you to open there now. And uh, before we read, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, we just want to come before you today and thank you for who you are. We want to thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather here today to be in your house with your people. And God, I pray that as, as we come in to worship you today, that God, your spirit would meet us right here, right now. God, you know what the last week looked like. You know what's going on in our lives. God, I pray that your spirit would comfort us and would speak to us and would draw us to yourself. God, we pray that you would be glorified through everything that we talk about. God, I pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So we're going to start in chapter 5 and, and look at verses 13. The first section we're going to look at is the appearance of God's commander. That's in uh, chapter 5, verse 13 through uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to say, well, what about, you know, what about the chapter division? You know, 5, 13 through 15 looks like one section, and then, you know, you move into chapter 6, and it's another section. But what we need to do is we need to ignore the chapter divisions, because uh, what you'll find in the first couple of verses of chapter 6 is they are the instructions of, of, uh, of the commander of the Lord's army who appears in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5. So we're going to read these verses together, starting in chapter 5, verse 13. And uh, it may be up on the string, and it may, it may, it may not be. So uh, uh, let's go ahead and read this together. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshiped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then it continues in, in verse 1 and says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king's and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. 
Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, you will hear the sound of the trumpet. Then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall flat down, down flat. And the people shall go up and everyone straight before them. So what we see is we see this, this strange appearance of this, of this man. Joshua, we don't know exactly when this happens and what Joshua is doing, but I have this picture that Joshua, before the day that was supposed to go in and attack the land, I picture Joshua kind of spending some time with himself, trying to get his mind right. And, and there becomes this, this man that comes to him with a sword drawn. And, and, and Joshua becomes a little bit startled. You know, this, this is going to be an appropriate and yet also an strange experience of this visitor before Joshua. It is appropriate because this visitor appears as a warrior. He has his sword drawn. And Joshua, his question is, is probably a natural question. His question is, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on the enemy's side? Are you with us or are you with the people of Jericho? You know, um, this is something that, that I always wonder, you know, why is this question, why do we always want to ask a question and make the question about us? I mean, Joshua sees this guy and his question is basically, are you on my side? Or are you on the bad guy's side? But shouldn't the question really be, am I on God's side or am I on the side against God? I mean, we want to always make the thing, we want to make the argument about, well, God, are you on my side or not? You know, and we go through a hard time. God, are you on my side or not? And here's Joshua. He's saying, are you on my side or the enemy's? But really the question should be, am I on God's side or am I on the enemy's side? And the response of the commander says he's, he's neither. He says, I'm not on Israel's sides or the side of the enemies. He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. You see, God has a way of revealing himself and his character at just the right time and in just the right way to meet the particular needs of his people. I mean, this is what the commander is doing here for Joshua. He's saying the ultimate responsibility does not rest on Joshua's shoulders. He's saying the the 12 tribes of Israel, they're not the only army fighting for this battle. He's making the case, hey, as a commander of the Lord's army, hey, there's something deeper and bigger going on than you realize. And the second statement that the commander makes to Joshua in verse 15, it would have opened up Joshua's eyes, is to just who he was speaking to. The, the, the commander says, Joshua, take off your sandals. And Joshua would have thought back to something that happened with, with Moses many years earlier in Exodus chapter 3 when, when God told Joshua, hey, take off your sandals for the place you were standing is holy ground. You know, we begin to draw the conclusion, well, well, who is this mysterious figure? Why does this mysterious figure tell Joshua to, to take his shoes off? We, we see in verse 14 that Joshua recognized this leader and he worshipped the commander as God himself. It says he threw himself down and he worshipped him there. See, this is what theologians call a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation or appearance of God to man. And if we kind of take this idea of what a theophany is a little further, in John chapter 1 verse 18, we learn that it says no one has seen the Father so it would be easily to conclude that the, actually this wasn't a theophany. This wasn't a presentation of God himself. This was what we call a Christophany. 
a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Here's Jesus before Jesus comes to the earth. He appears before Joshua and he says, hey, I'm the commander of God's army. I'm here. There are several examples of Old Testament uh, Christophanies throughout the Bible. In Genesis chapter 18, we know that, that God came to, um, uh, um, came to Abraham as, as a man, as a, as a wanderer. We know in, in Genesis chapter 32 uh, that J- Jacob had a wrestling match with this mysterious man that we believe to be a uh, Christophanian appearance of Jesus. Moses and the burning bush, uh, as he's talking to uh, God himself, we would believe that to be another Christophany, another presentation of Jesus. Here in Joshua chapter 5, we see this, and we would believe this to be a presentation of Jesus. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, in the book of Daniel, we know this story, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in the fiery furnace. And while they're in there, people say, man, there isn't just three men in the fiery furnace, there's a fourth. And many people believe that to be another example of a Christophany of Jesus in the middle of that. As well as in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this great vision of, 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 of Jesus in the temple, and his robe fills the whole temple. And again, this is another, uh, theologians believe these are another example of, of Jesus Christ appearing before men throughout the Old Testament. So what's the importance of this encounter? I mean, why does this encounter matter? Why does it matter in the story? See, one primary function of this was, was not for the commander to give instructions to Joshua on how they're to battle, but rather it was to bring reverent submission. It's as though Joshua needs to see God not so much as choosing sides, but rather as seeing God as the sovereign God, as a ruler over all the earth. It's as though Joshua needs to, to know that it's more important to recognize God's position rather than just knowing God's plans. See, there's a danger involved when we become more interested in special guidance as opposed to a right relationship with the guide himself. And so, as I said before, we need to ignore the chapter division, and we see that these verses go together between 5.13 and and 6.5. The first verse of chapter 6 is kind of inserted as a parenthesis. The purpose of this verse uh, is to describe the seemingly hopeless situation that confronted Israel. Specifically, that verse says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of Israel. No one went in and no one came out. We, we look at this and we realize, hey, this sounds like a pretty helpless situation. And this makes the statement by this commander of the Lord's army in verse 2 all the more encouraging. Because in verse 2, It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and its mighty men of valor. And this is kind of the way that God works. We read verse 1 and we say that sounds like a hopeless situation. But in light of verse 1, God gives us verse 2 that says, See, I've already done this. See, this land, I've already given it to you. This statement from God really points to the fall of Jericho as already being a done deal. This is how awesome and how surprising God's methods usually are. What seems hopeless, what seems insurmountable, God says it's already a done deal. So next, the commander gives Joshua some very specific instructions about how to take the city. And the instructions are not, hey, you need to throw a rope over the tower or over the walls and climb up the walls. No, the instructions that he gives are this. He says, you are to circle the city Once a day for six days. 
And, and the formation is led. In the front, you have a group of armed soldiers. Uh, then after the armed soldiers, you have seven priests who are continually blowing uh, a ram's horn. Uh, then you have the Ark of the Covenant, who is uh, carried by, by, by the priests. Uh, then followed behind the Ark, you have another set of armed guards. And so this city would have been approximately seven acres in area with a perimeter of just under a half a mile. And so most likely as, as Israel's men were to, to march around the city, they would have completely encircled the city as they're marching. So as, as the group sets out to march around the city, the, the leaders in the front, there's still men that are starting their circle as the first group is coming all the way around. The idea is that when the walls actually fell down, all the people would just be able to swarm in. And on the, the instructions were on the seventh day, this same procession would walk around the city seven times. And then after having all the people be silent for a week other than the ram's horn, they were supposed to yell at the walls. Now these instructions, we look and we say, these instructions are kind of weird. They have no real historical precedence, no clear rationality, no military credibility. It is completely different than anything that has ever been done, contrary to any method that we would view as being successful for any army between then and now. The only reason to believe that this will work is because it's God's word. The second section that we're going to see is, is in verses 6 through 15. We're going to see the Israelites' faithfulness to God's instructions. Let's read those verses together. Verse 6 says, So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark. And said to the and he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men who were walking before the priests were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, he said, You shall not make... Uh, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day that I tell you to shout. And then you will shout. And so he caused the ark of the, of the Lord to circle around the city going about at once. And he came into the camp and spent the night there. And verse 12 continues and says, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. And so they did for six days. And finally, verse 15 says, On the seventh day they arose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. See, immediately what we see is, is after, after the commander of the Lord's army has given Joshua the instructions, we see that Joshua begins to, accuse, to execute God's plan of battle. And, and, and the author goes very in-depth to detail exactly how this is going to happen. And, and, and he instructs, here's what happened on day one. And he gives the detailed instructions of day one. And then he kind of summarizes and says, hey, they did this again, verses on days two through six. And finally in verse day seven. One thing as we read through that passage, one thing that's something that you would probably even miss, that is so important for us to understand, 
is we see that just like when the Israelites were crossing the Jordan River, we're going to see that the Ark of the Lord, uh, which represented the presence of God, it was on center stage throughout this entire group of verses between 6 and 15. If you read these verses, you're going to see that nine times, nine times between verses 6 and 15, you can go through and underline them, nine times you're going to see uh, the Ark of the Covenant mentioned. It's God's presence in the midst of his people that makes the difference. This is what gives them strength to follow through on the strange commands that God gave them in the first place. And, and, and you, we remember the instructions. Remember the instructions of the people. They're not allowed to shout until the signal is given. And so, and so the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant being such an important piece in this passage, goes to show the point of how central God's presence is. And really in how passive God's people are. In this case, God's people would not contribute to the overthrow of, uh, uh, of the city. It was God's battle. It was God that was going to do the work. It was God's presence amongst his people. Although the people were involved in the combat and the mop-up. See, oftentimes this is how God operates. That God does something to enhance his own glory in the world. Where he kind of he bypasses what you and I do to show himself as being the almighty and the all-powerful God. Here, if Israel only marches and shouts, then there really, there's no doubt about who batters Jericho to the ground. See, this theme is important for us to see. Israel, Israel, they participate ceremonially in this episodes of God's war, but it's God's presence that is, uh, that is decisive in toppling Jericho. The overwhelming power doesn't come from Israel or from their marching or from their shouting or from anything that they do. This is the overwhelming power that comes from God and God alone. The next section, verses 16 through 21, we're going to see the demand on God's people. Let's read these together, and it says, Verse 16, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, uh, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go to the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep, the donkeys with the edge of the sword. See, one interesting thing as you read through those verses, one interesting thing is you're going to see, is you're gonna, we know from the instructions that as soon as Joshua gave the command to shout, the people were supposed to do what? Shout. And so it's interesting as you read this passage, you see in verse 16, Joshua says, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the natural progression of what you expect to read next is the people shout, right? But this is not the way that the author put this together. We see in verse 16, he says, shout. And then there's these three verses in between, verses 17, 18, and 19. And, and then after verses 17, 18, and 19, then in verse 20, we see finally the people shouted and the walls came tumbling 
down. These three little verses, 17, 18, 19, are inserted like a little lecture, immediately following the command to shout. You see, it's in these verses that Joshua reminds the Israelites of the ban, that they aren't to take anything out of Jericho, that every single thing in the city is to be destroyed, except for the silver and the gold that would be put into the treasury. And then he also reminds the people of the protection for Rahab and her family. You see, as you read this story, it's kind of like a delayed climax. I mean, there's the command to shout in verse 16, and then you can imagine the people, they've been silent for seven days. You can imagine they're ready to shout. They're anxious for the moment to get involved in the battle. But that stuff in the middle, those three little verses, they are put there for a reason. They are there as if to say that what Joshua is about to say is more important than Jericho's walls falling down. I mean, we see the command to shout, and we see Joshua before the people actually shout. We see this little speech by Joshua as if to say, hey, these three things here, these three verses are are significant. They're probably more significant than the people actually shouting and making the walls fall down. They are as if to say that what Joshua is about to say is more important than Joshua's walls, than Jericho's walls falling down. With this specific literary style, the writer highlights the priority of obedience to God's command over the victory itself. I mean, let's be honest. How many times have we had some mountaintop experience? Some, something just amazing that happens in our life, and, and everything's going so good, and we feel so good. Um, I mean, how many times do we have that happen, yet before we can come down off the mountaintop, there's a temptation lurking. There's something stupid and foolish and often small, but it's enough that causes us to stumble. I mean, I remember back when I was in high school and I was on the track team. And uh, one of the things is when you got in trouble, they'd make you go run stairs. I don't know how many of you guys run stairs. Um, you know, running stairs sucks. It really just it sucks, right? Amen. I mean, that's the first amen today. Amen. You know, but running stairs is a great workout, you know. And, and, and I remember, so when we were doing whatever, he'd say, hey, you need to go run. Uh, we were Eisenhower High School, so we'd have to run up the, the, the bleachers. We'd have to run up to the top of the bleachers. You know, I don't know how tall that is. It's pretty tall. And they'd say, well, you've got to do 10, 10 laps. You've got to run up. And I remember one time, I was like, all right, I'm going to go do this. And, and I ran my 10 laps, and I get up to the top, and I'm feeling so good. I did it. I'm done. And, and I didn't die. And I'm, you know, and I'm coming down kind of slowly, and, and, and there was just a little pebble. But it was enough that it rolled my foot, and I remember falling down three or four of the stairs. And it was quite the, quite the, quite the scene. Everybody's kind of stopping and laughing and saying, hey, look at that guy. But, you know, isn't that the way it happens in our life as well? I mean, it's almost, it's almost as though the writer knows that this is how life works. Because even when there are big victories, there are temptations that are lurking to snare us and to trip us up. And, and, you know, God's going to do this great work. God's going to cause the walls to fall down. But the temptation will be to take something for yourself. The temptation will be is, is even though God's done this work, the temptation will be to stop focusing on God and get tripped up by that small thing. That really is, it doesn't really matter in the long run. So the reminder is to stay holy, to remain faithful to God's command. And we'll see just how significant this is next week as we read chapter 7 about a dude named Achan. And we'll see just how crucial it is that even in that moment when, when God blesses, when, when there's victory, when there's a mountaintop experience, that we have to remain faithful to God's commands. 
We'll see what happens to Achan next week. Another interesting thing to point out is, you know, we call this story the Battle of Jericho. You know, that, that, that's what we remember. And in our minds, when we hear the Battle of Jericho, you know, we don't think of, you know, the preparation. We start thinking through uh, the walls falling down. We start thinking about, in our mind pictures, the assault of the city. We start picturing the guys are thinking of the combat scenes that we would put in the movie of, of the walls of Jericho if we're making the movie, you know. And we're thinking, yeah, we're going to do big explosions and sword fights and all sorts of, of great things. But notice that the writer isn't necessarily concerned with the battle. He's not concerned with the bravado of the Israelite soldiers. In fact, he only gives a brief mention, kind of a matter-of-fact report of the triumph itself, lasting only two verses. Verses 20 and 21. That's all you get for the battle. This should clue us in that the concern of the story isn't the actual battle and isn't the soldiers. Those are just kind of an add-on that the writer gives because he knows we're curious, but that's not the focus of the story. Finally, the last section of this, uh, the last part of this section is uh, verses 22 through the end. And we're going to call that salvation and God's judgment. Verse 22 reads this, and it says, But to the two men who spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring from there the woman and all who belong to her. As you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron. They put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom God sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. See, lastly, the last section is, is the writer wants us to see the salvation in God's judgment. See, in between the notices of Jericho's destruction of verse 21 and here in verse 24, we see the story of salvation, the story of, of rescue of Rahab and her family. They are saved just as the arrangements that we learned about in Joshua chapter 2 from several weeks ago uh, because of sh the arrangements she had previously made with the spies. See, Rahab, she feared God's threat, and she pleaded with God for mercy. And now, that mercy has been extended completely to her. This pagan woman, who we remember as being a prostitute, she now stood in the circle of God's chosen people. And if you remember from our story in Joshua chapter 2, a few weeks ago, we remember that God would use Rahab in the line and genealogy of Jesus. So the story of Jericho, the story of, of the walls of Jericho. As I read the story and I think about the way it's normally told, I think about the way that the Sunday school song teaches us. Joshua fought the battles of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But you know, I just don't see that in this story. I don't see Joshua actually fighting the battle of Jericho. In fact, Joshua and the Israelites, none of them were actually the hero of the story. The hero of the story is God. 
So no, I don't think that we can sing that song and say Joshua fought the battle of Jericho because Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. It was God's fight. It was God's battle. Did God use Joshua and the Israelites? Yes, he did. But whose glory should be made from the story? It's God's glory. So Joshua, if we were to name this sermon, we would name this sermon, Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. So we say, well, what does this story have to do with us? Now, I'm not sure what your testimony is. I'm not sure what your story is with Jesus. But this past May, I, I, I celebrated my 14th birthday of being a Christian. I've been able to follow Christ for 14 years. And if you were to ask me to, if you were to, ask me to summarize what my Christian life looked like, I would say that my Christian life has been messy. It's been messy. I mean, I've tried faithfully to know Christ and to make Christ known throughout my entire life, but the truth is life is filled with trials and, and difficulties. And, and there's been doubt. And there's been times when, I left, when I'm left with more questions than answers. You know, and I, don't know, I don't know what your testimony is, but if you have the testimony that you came to know Jesus and you, don't, and you no longer struggle, struggled with X, Y, Z, then praise God. But I'll just say, you're not normal. You're not normal. I mean, praise God for that story that says you came to know Jesus and you didn't have those inner struggles and you never wrestled with that anymore and you didn't desire those things anymore. Praise God if this is you, but it's not the normal. Because most people I've met, this isn't their story. This isn't their story. And what that story does is it creates an impossible weight that is laid on the rest of us because, hey, if this person, if they're so great, if they're so perfect, if they surrender to Jesus and everything is good and great, then shouldn't that be the same thing for me? And so what we do is we begin to fake it. We begin to act the part to say, I have everything all together when deep down we know inside things aren't right there. There's doubt there's struggle, there's difficulty, there's trials, there's circumstances, there's emotional issues that we're wrestling through. See, I don't think that Christianity works in that way where everything is good and gravy. Life is messy. Even the Christian life. Restoration Church, shame on us. Shame on us if we pretend to be the people who have life all figured out, singing Kumbaya. Shame on us if we claim to be the people who know all the answers, who, who, who are happy as, as Paul Revere with a cell phone. Shame on us if we try to play that part. Restoration Church, let's be a place where we set aside the kumbayas and let's be real. Let's be authentic. You don't have to have everything figured out. Knowing Christ is a process. We will never fully get there wherever there is. It is a process that God is continually changing us. God is continually drawing us to himself. See, Jericho was a picture of an impossible trial. It was a daunting circumstance. There seemed no logical way to defeat it. It loomed over the Israelites as if standing before them to say, come on, Israel, come and get me. You got nothing on me, Israel. My walls are too high. My gate is too strong. You can't overcome me. You can't get through me. Where is your Jericho? 
Where is your trial? What is your circumstance? What is your difficulty that stands in the way from receiving the full life that God has given to you? For some of you, that Jericho is going to be sin. That Jericho for you, that, that, that difficulty, that trial, that circumstance is the addiction. It's the anger. It's the pride. It's going to be something that weighs you down. It's that thing that you've tried and tried and tried to overcome. And sometimes you feel like you can get a leg up on it. But eventually you find yourself succumbing back to the same struggle. You might be able to hide it from those close to you, but you know it's continually there. It's continually lurking. It's continually standing in your way and preventing you from experiencing all that God has offered to you. For some of you, your Jericho, it's a wound. It's a hurt. It's a pain. Maybe it's been caused by yourself, but more often than not, it's been caused by someone else. And no matter how hard you try, you can't overcome that pain. You can't heal from it. Sure, we try to numb it. Sure, sure, we try to ignore it. But it stands looking before you as if to say, my gates are sealed. You cannot defeat me. For some of you, that Jericho is your worry. It's your fear. It's your heartache. It's your doubt. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's what happens at school every day. Maybe your Jericho is that voice in your head that says you aren't good enough. You aren't lovable. You've messed up and you're not worth anything. You know why these Jerichos exist? Because when we try on our own strength to beat them, we try in our own strength to say, I'm going to overcome this and I'm going to kick this out of my life and it's not going to be there anymore. And we sing that song from that Sunday school class, Kevin fought the battle of Jericho and the walls are still there. And we sing that song again and again and again. Joshua fought the battles of Jericho. Joshua did not fight the battles of Jericho. And you and I, if we try and fight the battle of Jericho, guess what? The walls will still be there. The walls will never come tumbling down because Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. Remember what Joshua did before the commander of the Lord's army? He bowed down before him and he worshiped him. This was a position of complete surrender. Jericho, it wasn't Joshua's battle. It was God's. It was never about Joshua and Jericho. It was always about God in Jericho. And your Jericho, I know you feel it. I know it consumes you, but it's not your battle. It's not about you. It's not about asking, it's not about you asking Jesus, Jesus, are you on my side or are you on their side? That's the wrong question. It's God saying, will you surrender to me and will you let me do battle? Or will you continue to try and fight and defeat? See, your adversary, your Jericho, would love for you to assume the worst about your situation. Your Jericho would love to see you uh, uh, heave a sigh and resign yourself to the feelings of depression. But I would say it's been my experience that when God is involved, anything can happen. 
the one who directed the stone in between Goliath's eyes, the God who split the Red Sea down the middle, the God who leveled the walls around Jericho, the God who brought his son back from the grave. He takes delight in mixing up the odds as he alters the inevitable and he bypasses the impossible. Those things that we look and see so strong and so mighty, God says, I specialize in destroying those walls. The key here is to stop fighting your Jericho. Stop fighting on your own strength. Stop trying to do what we, you know, I'm just helping God. I mean, isn't that what we do? We know what God says and we say, well, I'm just going to help God and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Stop trying to help God. Just as Joshua before the commander of the Lord's army, we need to bow down. We need to surrender to God. We need to let God do what only he can do. God leads. God instructs. We obey. But it's God who gets the victory. It's God who gets the, 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 the glory. It's God who causes the walls to come tumbling down. Remember that confidence that the commander had in verse 2. Remember that confidence that he said, see, even though the walls are shut, even though it's so difficult, see, I have given you this land. Jesus would say that same thing to you. He would say, I've already defeated the enemy. He would say, 2,000 years ago, I was arrested. I was beaten. I was tried and convicted in a mock trial. I was scorned. I was crucified on that cross. But on that cross before he died, do you remember those words that he said? He said, it is finished. Satan, death, sin, hell, your Jericho. Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus defeated it on the cross 2,000 years ago. He defeated the enemy. He offered his perfect life in exchange for our broken lives. He offers us freedom from sin, freedom from slavery. He offers us a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. He offers us eternity in heaven. We don't experience this freedom by going out on our own and fighting the battle of Jericho. No, he says, by faith. He says, by faith, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is truly God and you will be saved. See, it's all about surrendering to God. About, about surrendering to God by faith and trusting in him and not in ourselves. Whatever that Jericho is that's looming over you. Man, God wants to give you victory. God wants us to walk in victory, in freedom. But it's not because we fight the battle of Jericho. It's because we surrender and let God fight that battle. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, as we are continuing in this series of Joshua... Lord, we're reminded to be strong. And Lord, as we, we look through even the story of the walls of Jericho, we think, God, being strong means we, we have it all together. Being strong means that we, 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 we fight so good on our own. But God, really what that means is that, God, you are the one that is strong. And we, we surrender ourselves to you because you are stronger and greater than we can ever know, we can ever comprehend. 
And God, I pray today for Restoration Church, God, I pray that we wouldn't be the people that pretend to have things all figured out, that this would be a safe place to say, hey, I'm struggling. This would be a safe place to say, hey, I've got this Jericho in front of me, and and, and I'm battling with it, but I need help. God, I can't do it on my own. God, I pray that this would be a place that we can say, hey, I don't have everything all together. I have doubt. I worry about things. Now, this would be a safe place to say, we don't have to have it all figured out. We just have to follow Jesus. We just have to surrender to him and trust that he will work in our lives. God, I pray for the Jerichos in here today. God, I pray that today you would begin to tear those walls down. That, God, that we would have the strength to to surrender to you. That we would have the faith to surrender, to give up our own strength to you. To trust you and to obey you as you lead. And that, God, being strong really means that we're surrendered. That we follow you. And that we trust in you alone. God, I pray for any of those in here today who are not yet Christians. Who have never surrendered their lives to Jesus. God, I pray that today would be the day that they would exchange their life for yours. That they would understand what it is that you did for them on the cross. That you lived a perfect life. But on that cross, you said, I'll take your brokenness. I'll take your sin. And I'll give you my righteousness. That today would be the day that they would call out to you and say, God, I believe in what you did for me. God, God, I'm sorry. I repent of my sin. And God, I surrender myself to you. God, will you be my savior today? God, I pray for every one of us that we would live in submission, in obedience, in trust. God, where you get the glory and not ourselves. And as we prepare now, God, to to worship you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to us exactly the way we need to today. Lord, for those that are struggling with Jericho's, God, that they would have the faith to be real before you. Maybe even the faith to be real and say, hey, pastor, can I talk with you? Hey, I'm struggling through this and and I keep living in defeat. Would you help me through this? Would you help me surrender to God? God, I pray for those in here today that they just need to close their eyes and they just need to praise you for how good you are. God, that we would, we would worship you because it's all about you. It's not about us. This victory was all about you, not about Joshua and, Jer- and the Israelites. And God, I pray that we would worship you because it is all about you. Because you are worthy of our praise. And God, I pray that you would give us the strength this week to continue to walk in your strength, to be surrendered to you every day. That God, every one of these Jerichos that creeps in, that God, you would tear these walls down. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for meeting us here at this moment. We ask this in your name. Amen.